0: Um, as Nicholas said, we want to love and serve the campus, and one of the ways we want to do that is by studying the Bible, and that might sound odd uh, to you like a strange way to love and serve uh, the campus, but we believe that uh, the greatest thing is love, and the greatest source of love, uh, the greatest object of love is Jesus Christ, and so we want to look uh, at, the, at the Bible each week, and we want this to be the place where you can come and you can hear the Bible make its claims about who this person Jesus is. And you can ask your questions. And to that end, there are questions there. You can text uh, that number, and it will come to my phone. It's a Google Voice uh, account where I don't see who's asking it. So you can ask questions anonymously if that would make you feel uncomfortable. But uh, after the announcements, I'll take a, a shot at trying to answer your questions. Um, so let's look at John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Uh, it's a pretty famous story about Jesus. It's his, uh, the account of his very first miracle. Um, so John chapter two, sorry verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." And Jesus said to her, "Mother, you carried me for nine months. Now let me carry you." No, that's how it says. <laughs> and Jesus, and Jesus said to her, "Woman." What does this have to do with me? We'll talk about all that in a minute. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of that out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory there, and his disciples believed in him. Let me pray, and we'll dive into this. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us. Uh, the text tells us that you manifested your glory there, and your disciples believed, and we want to see that glory, too, and we want to believe. Or maybe we don't want to believe. Maybe we're coming from a place where we're angry at you or questioning you um, uh, or doubting your existence and just wanting to know what this is about. Wherever we are, God, would you speak to us tonight, and I pray this in your name. Amen. So the question on the board before was, what show or you could probably say shows, Did You Binge, over the summer. And my favorite show, my favorite comedy, favorite comedy television show, is Arrested Development. Um, and my favorite episode of Arrested Development is an episode called Bringing Up Buster. And so if you don't know uh, the story at all, uh, you you need to fix that. Um, actually, could you just log on to Netflix real quick, and we'll just watch Arrested Development. Um, the... Um, it, the, the episode is bringing up Buster, and there's a scene, so the, the, the setting of Arrested Development is there's a grown family, and the grandfather, father figure of the family is in prison uh, for cheating in his business, uh, his his real estate development business, uh, hence Arrested Development. And uh, George Sr. is in prison, and he's meeting with his grown son, Michael, who is there to talk about the problems that Michael is having with his son, George Michael. So George and Michael are talking about the problems that his teenage son, George Michael, are having. And this is a snippet of their conversation. He's visiting him in prison, like in the visiting room where there's no touching. Um, And George Sr. says, listen, let him go. Just let your son go. I can't do that, Dad. He needs me. Michael, you don't want to make the same mistake your mom made with Buster. Buster's his younger brother. Yeah, boy, what happened there? George Sr., I really don't know, maybe it was the 11 months he spent in the womb. <laughs> he was her miracle baby, and I, I was just too burnt out on raising you guys to care. So he turned out a little soft, you know, a little doughy. I don't know, maybe it was my fault, maybe, maybe I just ignored the guy. And as he says that line, the camera pans back to reveal that Buster is sitting at the table with them <laughs> the entire time. that you hadn't seen it, the camera's cutting back and forth, at which point Buster says, wow. We're just blowing through naptime, aren't we? Um, and then Michael says, yeah, I gotta let my son go. Um, and so I, I tell you that, it's, I ruined it. It's better when you watch it. Uh, but what, what was so brilliant about it, what I love about that show, is that the context was the joke. Like, you didn't know Buster was sitting there, and so when, it's, when you suddenly see that he's there, everything that was said a minute earlier is now funny, uh, in light of the fact that he is there. The context itself is the joke. And this conversation that Jesus has with his mother has a context, uh, and we'll look at that. Um, we'll take our cues from the writers of Arrested Development and look at uh, the busters sitting around the table that we might not have noticed when we just overheard Jesus and his mother speaking. But first, let's just look at the conversation itself. It's pretty brief. Uh, verse 3. Mom shows up. She says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So there um, At a wedding, to give a little context, it would have been very shaming for the groom to run out of wine. It would be like just an embarrassment. It would be like walking down the aisle in your underwear. Like it was just in that culture, it was your job to to provide a feast and a party. And so um, Mary's trying to help her friend out. Um, And she just wants help. Like this is Jesus's first miracle. So she's probably not expecting him to do something like magical. But she's going to him and asking for help. And his reply, woman... In some translations, translate it, dear woman. That's not what he said. <laughs> it feels a little offensive to us, but it's not offensive. It would not have been offensive to her in the way that it would be to you and me. Like this is not a good example to follow the next time your mom calls. Don't answer the phone like, woman. What do you What do you want? <laughs> um, um, that would be a normal way to address a woman. Um, but it is a little bit abrupt, right? There are words for mom or mother that he doesn't use, and it's in front of his friends, like he's hanging out with his disciples. Um, and uh, it's distancing. Um, what does this have to do with me? It's not exactly rude, but one commentator called it a measured rebuke of his mom, correcting his mother when he asked him for help at a party. Like, what's his deal? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Just like what does that even mean? That's weird. That's a weird thing to say when you're asked for like catering assistance. A distancing, correcting, cryptic response to his own mom when she asked for help. What is going on? So we need to understand the context. Let's look at the busters at the table. The first buster is the wedding, the wedding itself. Um, you ever been to a wedding? I get to officiate them sometimes, which is fun. Um, what do you think about when you're at a wedding? I think I'm the only married person in this room. Um, I think about my wedding whenever I'm at a wedding. Uh, I remember that day. I remember being, you know, really nervous. I remember how beautiful my wife was and just the excitement of it and the surrealness of the fact that this is happening. But even before I was married, like, when you go to a wedding, you can't really help but think, like, am I ever going to be up there? Will I get married? Who will I marry? It's, It's on your mind. Um, and you think about your own wedding. The whole Bible, one of the major metaphors for God's relationship to his church, his people, is that of a husband to a wife. Ephesians calls Christ uh, the husband of the church, that we are his bride. Um, And what's interesting, particularly in the Old Testament, is God's people, his wife, his bride, are demonstrated again and again uh, to be unfaithful to be cheating on him consistently and yet he relentlessly loves us and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that Jesus there at this wedding is thinking about this thing that God said is one of the primary metaphors of his relationship to us and so he's saying this what does this have to do with me because this this isn't my wedding um, it's not my time yet so um And and even in the book of Revelation, the return of Jesus is pictured as a wedding feast for him and his people. The very kind of feast that he is participating in at that very moment when she asks for this help where he does his first miracle. So let's pan the camera around. So that's one buster. The buster is the wedding. Second context of, of buster is that phrase that he uses, the hour. My hour has not yet come. And throughout the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, when Jesus refers to his hour He's talking about the hour of his crucifixion, the the thing that he came to do, him being uh, tortured and murdered. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, when he's in the garden praying with his disciples and Judas, his betrayer, comes uh, with the soldiers to give him a kiss to identify him. Jesus says, behold, my hour has come. Here comes my betrayer. And so it begins and he goes on to be killed. So she says, we're out of wine, and then he says, Mom, it's not time for me to die yet. Which is really odd. What in the world? And I think that Jesus, thinking about his bride, is also thinking about the price that he will have to pay to get her. The hour has not yet come. This beautiful irony of the gospel in the Bible, this notion that in Jesus' greatest humiliation is his greatest glorification. And Mary is seemingly asking for this small thing. She's saying, you know, go ahead and glorify yourself a little bit now. And he's like, mm, I don't know. It's not, I'm not sure if it's really time for that yet. Uh, I'm going to have to die. Um, so he is so focused on what he has to do. He's so focused on the purpose for which he came that even here at a wedding, at a request from his mother, he is demonstrating to his mom and to his disciples that no other human opinion or ideology or plan of what his messiahship ought to look like will get in the way of what he has to do, even if it's his mom. Quick application. Um, Do you ever feel like to some degree you have to reject your parents to follow Jesus? It could be a big one. It could be like your your parents are like hostily opposed to the notion that you, like, you really don't want them to know that you're here tonight. And that's several of you. You're kind of risking something even by being here listening to all this Jesus-y Bible stuff. Um, but for others, it could be, you know, you, you, you grew up going to church and the Sunday school, but th- your parents really want the American dream for you more than like, taking up your cross and following Jesus, even if it means a life of sacrifice or poverty or what have you, right? They'd be like a smidge disappointed, <laughs> maybe give you advice uh, to not look in to that other direction you may be going. And Jesus, to some extent, had to deal with that, too. There's times here where his mother, in, in this little moment, and there's later later on in, or in the Gospel of Mark, like, His mom and his brothers come. He's out working miracles and they're like, dude, have you lost your mind? Like, come home. Like, what is going on? That's enough of this. Or another application. Do you ever feel like you're asking Jesus for something very legitimate and good? You're wanting God to help you and the answer is just like no. His own mom had the same experience. I find that encouraging. I find that interesting. Like, if Jesus would you fix this, then things would be good. Give, give me a relationship. Give me an A in this class. Give me that job. Resolve this conflict. Fix my financial issues. Fix the party. Fix the party. And he's silent. Distancing. Almost rude. Um, but then... Notice how she reacts. It's really incredible. Like you would think, like all of our moms would be like, "I changed your diapers. Like, don't talk to me like that. Especially in front of your friends. Like, maybe pull you aside, make a passive aggressive comment, something." She just goes. She just turns the services. Just do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Um, this complete trust and obedience. Do whatever he says. Why? Why is that her reaction? Well, she's known him a while. Like Mary probably knew Jesus better than anyone. Like she like knew him when he was a little kid. How cool is that? Um, okay, Jesus, like you're doing this thing, but just do whatever he tells you. He's gonna take care of it. And she remembers angels appearing to her saying, "Behold, you are with child." And she's like, you know, I figure I can trust this guy. I don't need an explanation at this point. I'm gonna I'm just gonna roll with whatever he says. And the rest of you, you do that too. Do whatever he says. Okay, so the last buster is the wine. The wine. Um, he turns water into wine, very famously. And at this point, some of you are thinking two very different objections to this concept. Uh, the first could be, if you're like highly skeptical, just the whole notion of miracles just seems ridiculous. Like, it sounds like I'm reading from Harry Potter right now. Uh, like, do you people actually believe this? Um, Really? Uh, Richard Dawkins, very famous uh, atheist, uh, would say, "You know, I could believe in Spinoza's God, but the man that believes in a man who a magic man who waves his hands over water and tannins and alcohol skips fermentation and all the science and abracadabra wine, right? <laughs> Can't believe in that God. That's silly, right?" Uh, or David Hume, uh, put it a, little, a bit more thoughtfully, uh, where he sort of rules out the possibility of miracles in, uh, in his philosophy. He thinks, you know, they can't be repeated, they can't be measured, they can't be tested, so we can't really know, which kind of begs the question, like, if, if, if that's a question for you or a skepticism you have, like, that kind of begs the question of, like, what miracles are in themselves, right? The whole idea of a miracle is that it's weird, that it's an instant that's in an instance in time, that it's not repeatable. That's kind of the definition of what a miracle is. So you can't just define it out of existence. You can't just say, well, that can't be so, because then if one actually did happen, you would not be able to believe in it. Um, so um, And by the way, like, we know, like your Christian friends know, I know, we know that it's weird. We know a man of the, basing our life on a man rising from the dead is a big thing, right? Um, we know that's not normal. I should say. Um, so don't, don't reject Christianity for that reason, if, if that's a reason that you want to reject it. And let's talk more about it. Um, but the other, others of you are objecting for a totally different reason, and that's like, when is Ben going to say and make clear that it was grape juice and not wine? Because Jesus would never do that, right? <laughs> um, it was wine. Uh, this is a short, short story. We can do like a fun like, Greek word study uh, over coffee if you really want. But it was definitely wine. Um, but um, you know, um, all through the Bible, um, alcohol is demonstrated as both this very good and potentially dangerous thing. And a lot of things in life are that way, like electricity is really good and really dangerous, right? Uh, alcohol is really good and really dangerous. Uh, it's, it's a good creation of God, but it can be horribly abused. And abuse is rampant uh, in our lives, on this campus, Bench drinking, all that stuff, and I would just simply say this, like, Jesus making a bunch of wine at a party is not our, like, blank check to be made in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made, and be, like, keeled over, throwing up, not able to remember what happened that night. Like, you're better than that. You're above that. You were made for more than that. You're a person of dignity and worth, and it's dehumanizing. And you don't, and you feel it, right? It's like, when it happens, you're like, man, let's, like, uh, what's the... YouTube channel college comedy comedy college humor. Uh, they've got a great one about like everyone says the day after when they wake up hungover. I'm never going to drink again, um, and then they do it again. Um, but there's a reason why we go. I'm never doing that again. Um, so, um, but at the same time, uh, on the other hand, it, it is a good creation of God. It's to be enjoyed. Uh, responsibly within the law, right? And so I think uh, part of what, and we'll get to a little bit more in a second, but like um, part of what this passage is showing us is that Jesus loves what I like to call hobbit-like merrymaking. If you ever saw the Lord of the Rings and Bilbo's party, though there were people being wheelbarrowed out of the party, so maybe that took a little too far, but there's this idea that Christians ought to be people that can enjoy good things from God and celebrate them and have a good time within the law and within wisdom. Okay, so Jesus enjoyed it as a good gift, and we can too, legally. Um, So, okay, what's going on here? That's part of the context of wine. Those are your objections. Let me move back to what's going on here. Um, So Mary says fix it, and Jesus takes it even further. Um, See, throughout the Old Testament, wine was uh, very frequently used as a symbol of the joy that would come with the coming of the Messiah um, and the joy that that he brings. And it was this picture of being blessed, of things being how it ought to be. This is from the prophet Amos. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, and they shall drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And it's this picture of everything being set right, of things being back the way they're supposed to be. And then it's interesting, he takes the purification jars, which would have held water that was used for ritual washings, within the Jewish tradition. And the ritual washings were there to take something that was unclean and make it clean, to make something unholy and turn it into holy, to make something bad and turn it into something good. And Jesus says, I'm going to use those purification jars, these holy jars with holy water, and I'm going to make wine. That's going to be my first miracle, this cleansing from unrighteousness. I'm going to set things right. I'm going to bring purity to my people. And I think the best way that I could picture of how to do that is to take these jars that the text tells us were twenty to thirty gallons. So if you average it, as twenty-five. I did the math on this. If you you know, like the standard bottle of, of wine, it's like I think it's seven hundred fifty milliliters, something like that. You've seen bottles of wine, right? You've been to the restaurants. You've seen them on the wall. Jesus made nine hundred bottles of wine <laughs> after they had already run out. Well, think about that. 900 bottles of wine. That is insane. Now, these parties lasted for days, okay? Often, like, at the wedding party, would be, like, you... Family would travel. We'd hang out for a while. And it's good wine. It's interesting because the, the guy tastes the wine. He's like, why did you save this for last? Like, you bring out the good stuff, and then after people have had a few drinks, they don't notice that the bad stuff is bad, and that's why you serve the good stuff first. And yet, it's not just 900 bottles. It's, like, amazing, Um, it's really good, good stuff. What does that tell us about Jesus? What is he telling us about his kingdom by choosing that to be his first sign? Um, he says, I'm going to give you more than what you were asking for. I'm going to give you this picture of what my kingdom is all about, this abundance of overflowing joy. Joy is lost, and then it's restored, and then it's increased. And I will die, my hour will come, so that you can have joy. And um, even if you were like the most hardened skeptic in the world, part of you longs for a life that's full of that kind of joy. Like part of you really, really wants that. Part of you can sense even now that you were made for that that you were made to be at that wedding feast with Jesus. Um, in, uh, ten years ago, do you guys know what tribal fever is? It's like the let's cheer for the team club here. Um, so when tribal fever started in 2009, I was friends with a guy. Or I knew the guy that was starting. His name was Chase Hathaway, a great dude. And they chartered two buses to go to the William & Mary UVA game, and they needed an adult. The school said, you need to have an adult. They were all adults, but the school said they needed, like, a real adult uh, to be, to be on, on the charter bus with him, and so he asked me to go, and he gave me free tickets to the game, the very best ones, like, front, front row uh, at UVA. So we ride out there, and I don't know if you know this, but William and Mary, well, I'll, I'll get to it. I'm, I get a program, and I'm walking around, there's this lady, she's wearing William Mary stuff, and I was like, oh, hey, and she's like, where'd you get your program? I was like, oh, it's right over here. I said, are, are you an alum? And she's like, no, my son's on the team. I said, oh, what's his name? She said, B.W. Webb, he's a freshman, it's his first game. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so awesome, you know, I'll cheer for him. Uh, and showed her where the programs were, and we kind of chit-chatted and came back. B.W. Webb, in that game, he now plays in the NFL. He had three interceptions in his first game in college at UVA, and his last one was a pick six, which... That is, football is a sports game, <laughs> and you're trying to be <laughs> clear. Um, so he's, they threw it, and he took it when he went for it. It's interception, and he ran it all the way back for a touchdown. Also called a pick six. So this, and I'm like, I know his mom. I met his mom. I'm going crazy, and like the, the crowd is going, like our little cheering section, you know, or like the pep band, and they're like rugby shirts, or like screaming, and like guys are like, I don't, I just met, or like jumping on my back, and we're like going nuts, and I was like, this is amazing, and I was like. Uh, there was a moment I felt like I was really part of William and Mary. It was really cool, um, but it was just—I mean, we, we were horse. Uh, hanging out with the guys afterwards it was like we're never going to forget this night. We're going to remember this for the rest of our lives. And it was just this amazing. I don't care if you don't like sports at all. When something like that happens and you're in a group of people, like something kind of sparks in you. You're like, this is unbelievable. This is so great. I love this. Uh, I want to be in the middle of this. I want to jump. I want to scream. And we love these things. We long for triumph and joy and victory because God made us to want that. And Jesus is saying, this is just a little taste. This is just a little bitty taste of what my kingdom is like. This is what my kingdom is is like. Pop open another bottle. Throw another burger on the grill. That friend you haven't seen in years just came through the door. Your wedding day, 900 bottles of wine on the wall. (laughs) All rolled up into one. That's what Jesus came to That's his first miracle. He said, this is what I came to accomplish, and I'm going to do it through my death. My hour will come, because his, his hour eventually did come. And the night before he was betrayed, he took wine. And he held it. He said, you know, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, and I will not drink it again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of heaven with you. This picture at the end of the Bible of a wedding feast with Jesus His first miracle and one of his last instructions to his disciples before he's killed, right around wine, and he says, I'm going to drink this with you right now, and then I won't drink it again until I come back, and we're all going to drink it together, and it's going to be incredible. The party is on offer to you. God's joy has made itself known to you through him dying in your place. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory there, and his disciples believed. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are good and you are kind, that you are far beyond our expectations. We pray that we would begin to know, even if we are in dark and sad and hurting places, that your joy, the future joy of your kingdom and what you accomplished for us would begin to break in, that we would not... Um, be without hope, but that we would be a place of joy and a people known for being able to celebrate and to rejoice with each other and with you. I pray that you would do that in us and through us. I pray this in your name. Amen.